Hello and welcome to the Forge Podcast. My name is James, and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary, and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I have been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in the scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now, grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the hearing and reading of His Word. Welcome back to The Forge, where we are continuing to journey through the book of Genesis. And we now find ourselves in chapter 3. So as I usually say, at this point, we're going to read the entire chapter. So we are going to read the entire chapter, Genesis 3, beginning at verse 1. And join with me there now, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than the beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest 
you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than the cattle and more than the uh, every beast of the field on your belly, you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the true and living God. And may he bless the reading and hearing of it. So there's several things that we should take notice of here in these verses. First of all, let's uh, look at the thing that 
probably stands out to all of us. We have a talking serpent, a talking serpent. Now, it has always been interesting to me that the woman, Eve in this case, although she's not named yet at this point in the story, but she did not think it was strange. But she enters into a conversation with the animal. And is it possible that animals spoke in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man? Well, we, we know from Scripture, as presented here, that at least one animal spoke in the Garden of Eden. So I would not be surprised at all if the animals and man enjoyed a very close friendship in the Garden. Now, I'm not saying it was this way. Um, I'm just simply saying that it wouldn't surprise me if we learned that it was this way. You know, Eve did not call out to Adam and say something like, hey, um, Adam, the serpent is talking. Has this ever happened before? <laughs> um, <laughs> she didn't react that way. She just continues on as though everything was normal. So is it possible that they communicated with the animals uh, in a perfect world? Just a question to consider. But the second thing that I'd like to call your attention to is notice that the Bible says that the serpent was more cunning than the beasts of the field, which makes me wonder and go look up in the dictionary and you can do this too. What does that word mean that he was more cunning? Well, here's what it implies. There's something of a personality in this creature. It speaks of his ability to get what he wants and even if he's got to be deceitful to get it, he doesn't mind. So, and I would like to just insert a very small J.O. here. Uh, J.O. is a James opinion. And probably soon and very soon, I'm going to stop telling you what J.O. stands for. And I'm just going to say J.O. But for now, because this podcast is relatively new, uh, James opinion, that's what J.O. stands for. So here's a very small James opinion. And I'll explain more about this later, but I believe that the serpent was not on his belly at this point in the, in the story. I believe that uh, at the very least, he probably had legs. He may have even had wings. So let's also notice what the serpent does here. First, the serpent takes away from God's word. Remember, at this point in history, Adam and Eve did not have a Bible like we have today. They did not have a full 66 books to read. They had one single command that was the word of God and God's command was this. And you get this out of the previous chapter. And I'm just going to quote it here so that we remember it of every tree of the garden. You may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was their one, one command. And the serpent quotes from this command, but he only quotes part of it. He doesn't quote the whole thing. And at the same time that he quotes a portion of it, he brings a question to God's word. Be cautious, dear listener, dear Christians who are listening to this, be cautious of teachers and preachers who tell you what you want to hear and make you feel good about yourself. If you're feeling a little too comfortable uh, with your preacher or teacher and what they're telling you, then perhaps one reason you feel so comfortable is because they're only giving you a portion of what God truly spoke. The best lie has a little bit of truth in it. So perhaps one reason you like your favorite teacher or your favorite preacher or your favorite author 
supposedly a Christian author, maybe one reason you like them so much is because they're not really issuing a challenge to your sinful flesh. That's why your flesh likes it. And this is why I stress context when you read uh, the Bible. And this is why I stress on this podcast, we read entire chapters of the Bible at a single sitting. And of course, we may go back and isolate script, a few verses of scripture, but what I'm attempting to do and doing this is to keep it in context. And I don't run off with only a portion of scripture here or there. And you'll notice too, that as we're going through each episode, I try to give you cross references. I try to send you to other places in the scriptures so you can see that I'm using scripture to interpret scripture. If we're not careful, we can make it say just about anything we want it to say. We can just make it up. And we don't want to do that. We want to strive for context and accuracy when we're reading the word of God. And we want to be consistent. So what am I saying? I'm saying that there are a lot of wolves out there in sheep's clothing. And they're very good at giving you a portion of what God said and being deceitful in the process. And that's what we see here from from the enemy, really, from the serpent in this case. He gives a portion of God's word, and then he brings a question. Has God really said this? It's a great question, especially since we're in the book of Genesis. Because what does evolution do? And I keep coming back to evolution because we're in the book of Genesis, and this is where evolution probably strikes the hardest uh, at the Bible and at the truth of God. Did God really do it the way it says in Genesis? I mean, come on. We're in the third chapter and you got a talking serpent. Friends, I'd rather believe that than believe that life was seeded here by aliens on the planet Earth at some point in the mystic past. I'd rather believe that God can make his creatures talk and do anything else that he wants them to do because he's God. He is the ultimate first cause and the greatest conceivable being. I'd rather believe that than believe that life came to be on this planet when lightning hit amino acids that were sitting on the backs of crystals. I would rather believe in special creation because there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that you and I as human beings are unique among the creation There's an overwhelming amount of evidence that we are higher than the animals. We are not just glorified animals. As I've said before, bags of meat with particular chemicals that happen to be functioning in a certain way with no outside guidance whatsoever. So, yes, where am I going with this? I'm going to say that I believe in the scripture I believe that this actually happened. And one reason I believe it is because we see see the same tactic that the enemy uh, tries here in the third chapter of Genesis. It's the same tactic being used today. Has God really said this? Did God really say such a thing? So moving on here, we see that Eve responds to the serpent. And notice what Eve does. And she hasn't been called Eve at this point in scripture. She's called the woman. But the woman adds to God's word with a phrase. 
And the phrase that she adds, she says, nor shall you touch it. You notice God in his original command, he didn't say anything about touching it. He said you can't eat of it. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. So here we have the enemy adding to the word of God, or rather, let me back up, the enemy only quoting a portion of the word of God, bringing a question to the word of God. And then we see that Eve is the one who actually adds to the word of God. Now, there's been speculation over this additional phrase. Uh, remember that God gave the command to Adam. His wife had not been created yet. And some have thought that these extra words were added by Adam as he was instructing his wife because she wasn't present. So it falls to Adam to be the one to continue to proclaim the word of God to his wife. It would be something like adding to God's word just so that we're being extra careful. Kind of like if you remember, I've already talked about the word Lord as it appears in Genesis and that it's all capital letters. And why did that happen? Well, it happened because remember there were folks who did not want to accidentally take God's name in vain. So they left out letters of his name so that we come to the modern day and we're not even sure what the name of God is. It could be Yahweh or Jehovah, which would probably be more like Yahovah. But regardless of that, this is the kind of thing that man tends to do. God gives a simple command and then we add to it just to be sure, just to be extra cautious. Because if I can't write it incorrectly, then I certainly won't be um, in violation of his command not to take his name in vain and use his name incorrectly. So this kind of speculation is interesting. Um, I will admit that it is interesting, but the Bible doesn't say that that's what happened. We don't know that Adam added to the word of God when he taught Eve. But one thing we do know for sure is that in this conversation between Eve and the serpent, that she adds to the word of God. She adds this phrase, nor shall you touch it. And so now we see the first lie of Satan recorded in scripture. The first lie. And remember, I told you in the book of Genesis, you're going to see a lot of first things. And here's a first thing. And then Satan comes right out with it here. You will not surely die. I could, I could almost hear him saying it just like that. You will not surely die. This is a flat out denial of God and his word at this point. And Satan attacks God's fairness and God's justice. And he plants a seed. He plants this idea. God is holding out on you. See, he doesn't want you to have this because God's not fair. But if you eat it, you'll be just like him. You'll be like a God. And I want you to notice here, our enemy's tactics have never changed, never changed. And these are the areas in which the evil one will always attack. He tempted in the following three areas. Number one, the lust of the eye. It looked good for food. Number two, the lust of the flesh. 
Aren't you hungry? God doesn't want you to be hungry. Number three, the pride of life. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to have this special knowledge? And these three areas will always be present when the enemy tempts you today. And notice what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and verse 16. This is what he says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So we see that Eve was deceived, but Adam willfully chose to disobey God here. And he also did not protect his wife, whom the Lord had given him. See, Adam had dominion over the whole garden. He could have uh, commanded the serpent to leave and the serpent would have had to have left because Adam was in charge. But we see something here in Adam. And it's this. Adam desired to increase his dominion beyond what the Lord had already given him. And that's what's really going to go on here. Adam, you're in charge of everything. You've got the whole garden. You name all the animals. You keep the garden. You tend to the garden. But there's just this one little part of the kingdom, and you're not allowed to consume it. Just this one little thing. And Adam desired to increase the borders of his dominion. And it was rebellion against God. And in Adam's rebellion against God, he lost it all. And some have speculated that Adam wanted to go with Eve and he ate the fruit first. And he was willing to go with her because he loved her. And I'm just going to tell you, friends, frankly, that's just a stupid notion. And it's highly over romanticized. Here's the bottom line. Adam wanted more than what God had given him. And that's just the simple fact of it. God said, don't do this. Adam said, I got a better idea. So inevitably at this point, one of the questions that first comes up, um, especially if you're talking with a non-believer and you're going through uh, this story with a non-believer, or if you're witnessing, they'll always ask, or maybe not always, but I've certainly heard it once or twice in my conversations with non-believers. They'll say something like this. In a perfect world, where did evil come from? Question mark. Now, the thing I love about questions like this is when a non-believer asks this, they act like I've never thought of it. Like they're asking me a new question that I haven't already tried to puzzle through in my own brain as if I'm accepting what I believe on total blind faith and I have no education and I'm not a great thinker like they are because they can think of these tough questions like where did evil come from? Now, it's a deep and powerful question. And here's the answer. Are you ready? I don't know. How about that? I don't know. I don't know where evil originated other than what scripture tells us. 
of all the things I've read, of all the lectures I've ever heard, all the teaching and preaching I've heard on this. I've listened to a lot of things where uh, this question has been raised and there's some really great writers and thinkers and philosophers out there, some great orators. That's just a fancy word for somebody who's really good at talking. And I'm convinced after all of that, they don't know either. So here's the one thing that we do know. We know that evil is here. So there might be debate on how it got here and where it came from and how did it get started in a perfect world where there was no sin. All I know is, is that evil is here today. And that is something that we can all agree upon. We all know evil when we see it. And we also know, even if we don't want to admit it, that when we talk about terms like good and evil, these terms are defined by something outside of ourself. In other words, true evil is not a matter of opinion because you might think something is evil and I don't think it is evil. But see, truth is just simply a fact and it's not influenced by my opinion. So when I'm talking about true evil here, it's evil because there's a standard that is non-evil and that standard is outside of us, and that is the standard to which we must appeal. This standard has to be unwavering. It has to be just, unbiased. It has to be objective, and it's got to be perfect. And that's why my opinion about it doesn't matter, and that's why your opinion about it doesn't matter, because opinions are not objective. They are subjective. So I personally believe that God... Uh, being perfect in all things and in all his attributes, he created a world in which he is glorified, in which he is glorified the most. And he has chosen to glorify himself by saving sinners. And what is a sinner? A sinner is someone who has done evil. And again, this is evil, not as I define it, not as you define it, but as God defines it. So where did evil come from? I do not know. So when you find the answer to that, go ahead and leave me a voice message and, and we'll uh, get back to you in a future, in a future episode. Bottom line is uh, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. The skeptic, the atheist, the humanist, the, uh, communist, the socialist, the evolutionist, um, all of these ideas that are antithetical to the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, um, they know there's evil in the world also. So we also find at this point uh, in our story that um, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, there's some debate among biblical scholars on exactly what this means, too. Um, but it's time for another J.O. I believe that this was a pre-incarnate. Uh, this was the pre-incarnate son of the living God. Um, in any event, um, what we have here is what's called a theophany, um, that God in physical form was walking in the garden and it's another first. This is the first time we hear of such an activity. Um, now, there's other folks that don't believe that this was a theophany, and that's okay. 
Um, no one's going to go to uh, heaven or hell based on whether they believe this was a theophany or not. And a theophany is just a fancy word that means there was a physical appearance of the eternal son, God in the flesh, before the incarnation, before uh, the virgin birth, before Mary gave birth to Jesus. So it's interesting to note that the phrase that we use, cool of the day, because it says God uh, was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, um, it could also be translated as the wind of the day in Hebrew. So we know that there was a sound because the Bible tells us that they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. So was there a wind? Was there a wind that is similar to the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit came upon all the people that were there? Um it states that they hid from God's presence. So they heard something. There could have been the sound of wind, which would um, imply the spirit of the living God. Um, there was obviously some kind of noise that happened. And to me, this implies a physical body when it says that he was walking in the garden. So, as Christians, we believe in the Holy Trinity, and I've talked about this from the very first verse of the Bible. Now, something about the Trinity, uh, the Trinity is something that was revealed um, fully in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we had uh, the Father, the Son comes, he uh, dies on the cross, he's buried, he is raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit then comes and dwells in the hearts of the believer and the church is born. So the Trinity is something that came out of general or I'm sorry, um, a gradual progressive revelation through the story of the entire scripture on the whole. But that said, we see things here even in the beginning that begin to lay the groundwork for this teaching of three persons in one being. I would like for you to also notice that man is a trinity as well. He is spirit, he is soul, and he is body. Now, I should point out here that I'm in the minority on this. Most theologians don't make a distinction between spirit and soul, and there are some that hold to what is called the dichotomy of man, meaning that uh, man is only body and soul, and of course they use soul and spirit interchangeably, in this view, the spirit and the soul are the same thing. Um, but I believe in what's called the trichotomy of man because I think there's good scriptural support to make a difference between the spirit and the soul. And plus, it makes man kind of a mini trinity, if you will. And I personally kind of like that. So I believe this is just another way in which human beings share in the image of God. And again, this is one of those trivial things that Christian scholars like to talk about. Uh, a few maybe have even debated it, but it has no real impact on doctrine or salvation. So why do I even bring it up? You know, there's a lot of little tiny points here that I just bring up. And it's like, well, if it doesn't matter, why are you bringing it up? Well, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I bring it up because man has now flip-flopped in his thinking because of sin. He was meant to commune with God in spirit, but now we follow our flesh. We follow our body. 
Instead of living spirit, soul, and body, now man lives body, soul, and spirit. In my final episode for what I'm uh, calling season one, I dealt with the topic of being born again. And what does it mean to be born again? Go back and listen to that episode. But I will just add here that to be born again means that God now places things in the proper order. And now Christians can communicate with God through the spirit, which he has made alive in Christ. By Adam's sin, all of humanity lost their fellowship with God. I want to call your attention to a passage of scripture, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 19. And I am going to read the whole passage. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. And here's what it states. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, which more, I'm sorry, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So what does that mean there in Romans chapter 5? It means this. Here's the bottom line. The fact is that when Adam sinned, we being in him, we're all guilty of the same crime. Now, this is known as the doctrine of original sin, and it places Adam at humanity as humanity's uh, federal head. Adam is the federal head, if you will, of all humanity. And so because of the first Adam that God created in the garden, placed in the garden, we are born in sin. And that's bad news, actually. Whatever shall we do? How shall we then live, you might ask? 
What chance do I have? I was born under the first Adam and the curse of Adam. Well, I have good news. If you want to hear the good news, go back and listen, like I said before, to that uh, final podcast of what I'm calling season one, entitled To Be Born Again. But the good news is, if I could add to it here, we have another tree to choose from today. It is the cross of Christ. And this, friends, is the tree of new life. So let's get back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And here we will see that man attempts to hide his sin from God. Fig leaves were an attempt to cover sin through their own work. Uh, This will never work for me. It will never work for you. And it did not work for them. Your good works, your attempt to cover up what you have done, your sin against God, you're going to try to improve your situation, make it better. It will never work. Notice what God does here. He asks them questions as if conducting an investigation. Now, he didn't do this because he had to learn something. And once again, I would take us back to things that we've looked at before where God remembers or God rested. Again, these are human expressions um, in an attempt to explain the actions of God on a human level. So again, God's not asking questions here because he had to learn something, but he's asking questions because he is going to get Adam and Eve to admit their sin and to face it. And we're going to see a passing of the buck. We're going to see excuses being made. But notice what happens here. A just judge will hear the evidence. Even if he already knows what the evidence is, even if he already knows the outcome, a just judge will hear the evidence. You know, and that's interesting to consider in a culture where judges won't hear evidence because they already know the outcome, say, of an election for president of the United States. They already know how it's going to go, so they don't need to hear any evidence. Interesting. But a just judge, even though he already knows, he's going to hear the evidence. Let them plead their case. And notice what Adam does here. Adam blames Eve. And indirectly, he blames God. He says, it was the woman that you gave me. She told me about it. And then I ate. And then Eve blames the serpent. He says, I was deceived. You talk about passing the buck. Here we have it for the very first time. Here's another first in the book of Genesis. And so God begins the curse. He begins his judgment. Right where the whole thing started from the beginning, he begins with the serpent. And God tells the serpent he is to crawl on his belly, that he will eat dust. And this makes no sense if the serpent was already on his belly like a snake. And this is why I tend to believe that whatever the serpent looked like, he didn't look like a snake at this point. He was possibly more like a dragon. And there is a dragon that is mentioned in another book in the Bible. Oh, that's right. In the book of 
Revelation. So we have this serpent figure in the beginning in the book of Genesis, and there's also one in the very end of our Bible in the book of Revelation. But notice what happens here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We have the promise of a Savior in verse 15. And this particular passage is called the Proto-Evangelium, which means it's the first gospel. We have here God's prophecy of a virgin birth. Well, where are you getting that from? I'm getting it from the quote there where it says the seed of the woman. Um, not to be too graphic here, but women do not have seed. So how does a woman have seed? Yet God says there will be a seed of the woman. And this seed of the woman is going to do something to the serpent. And even in some Bibles, the word seed has a capital S. So uh, this phrase, bruise his heel. In other words, the serpent will uh, bruise the heel. This is a reference to the cross of Christ, where Christ was temporarily wounded, but he rose from the dead. And Jesus ultimately bruises the head of the serpent, meaning that Satan is ultimately defeated at the cross. And notice that God equates sorrow with sin. There is going to be sorrow now for the woman in conception and in childbirth. Uh, the Bible tells us here that the desire of the woman will be for her husband. And this means not that she's going to have a strong attraction for him. But what is actually meant by this phrase here is that she will want to usurp his authority. And from this point on, in the relationship between man and woman, there will be conflict between the woman and the man. She will rebel against God's order. And I probably offended somebody in the audience whenever I said that. Um, but all I ask you to do is just do your own research into the passage of Scripture and find out if what I'm telling you is correct or not. Um, dig into it and find out. God set up an order, and what he's saying here is... To the woman, you are going to rebel against the order that I've set up. But God makes a promise here uh, to her about the man. God states that the man shall rule over thee. That's what it says in the old King James. The man shall rule over thee. So before sin, there was a harmony between the man and woman. And now just as Man has flip-flopped, like I talk, talked about earlier, instead of living for uh, the spirit and communing with God in spirit, now man seeks to fulfill his body or his flesh. And it's the same thing that happened here in the relationship between man and woman because of sin. Because of sin, all of man's relationships suffer from the same reverse thinking. And how often do we see women taking a place of authority over their husbands or trying to take the place of authority over the husbands? And how often do we see husbands that are willing to allow it? Uh, men who will not stand up because they're sinners. And yet uh, when we do see men who do try to take more of an assertive role, uh, to the degree that the woman, the wife, is not submitted to the to God, she's not submitted to her husband. And this is just a backward thinking, and it leads to domestic violence and all the rest. To the extent that we humble ourselves before God 
as men, as husbands, we become the leaders that we are to be in the home to the extent that our wives submit to God and humble themselves before God is the extent that they live in harmony and love and understanding with their husbands. And it's difficult. It is difficult for both. Why? Because we're sinners. So next, notice what happens here. God judges man. Mankind will now have sorrow in labor in the fields where he works. And this is not going to be like the uh, work that he had in the Garden of Eden, tending the Garden of Eden. Now we get thorns. Now we get thistles. Now we have weeds that grow up with the crops. And how fitting it is that Jesus would have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. See, my curse becomes his crown. And when he returns, he is going to be wearing a true crown, not a crown of thorns this time. So God covers them with the skins of animals. And here we have another first. For the first time, death now enters creation. And I have often wondered as Adam and Eve stood there and they watched this, I wonder how they felt as they watched an innocent animal um, take their place. Because remember, God promised that in the day they ate of the fruit that they would surely die. And so what began on that first day of sin was the process of death in both humans. And rather than killing them right there on the spot, God himself shows a blood sacrifice to cover their sin. And so instead of killing them right on the spot, Death will come gradually. And the sacrifice here, it only covers their sin. It did not remove their sin. You know, Hebrews 9.22 tells us, and uh, actually Hebrews 9.22 is a a reference back to Leviticus 17.11. And it tells us there that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So even though death would one day finally come for Adam and Eve, we can see God's restraint here. We can see his love and his grace, even at this point in the human story. So God drove out man from the garden. And ever since this point in time, our sin is what has driven us out of God's presence. God, in his great love for man, places an angel to guard the entrance to the garden. And you might be thinking, what? How's that love? Here's how it's love. Because Adam was foolish enough that he would have gone back in to eat from the tree of life. And even if Adam lived a very long life, I could see him making an attempt toward the end of his life to get back there and to figure out some way to get that fruit from the tree of life. And perhaps you think I'm being too hard on Adam. Uh, Adam would never do that. Listen, I know my own heart and I know what I would try to do if I had the opportunity to do it. And my point here is, is just that God had mercy even in his judgment of man. He placed that cherubim there, that guard to keep man away from the tree of life. And you'll remember in my last episode, I I kind of made the uh, illusion, the illustration, if you will, uh, looking at the character of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. 
and how uh, he lived an extraordinary long life and his really his lust, uh, his desire for the ring, the ring really had dominion over Gollum's life. And what he ends up being by the end of the story is not what he was at the beginning. And that is really, as I said in that episode, whether it's intended or not, it's a picture really of what sin does to the human condition. And so uh, we see that where I'm going with that is just if man had the opportunity to live forever in a physical body, he would probably take that opportunity and live forever in a physical body with all of its sin and deterioration and sickness and disease, uh, but never, never dying. And so God really is showing uh, mercy and grace and really God's protection of man by guarding this tree in the garden. So I'm going to close out this episode with this final statement here. Um, what we have read here in the first three chapters of Genesis does not record every single last detail of every possible thing that happened. Uh, God chose to give us an abbreviated story with relevant facts. Uh, Genesis is narrative and there's not one single reason to think of it as poetry or symbolism or allegory or anything else. Uh, in fact, the very language and the words that are used show that it was the author's intent to not allow for these ideas in the narrative. Now, there are places in Genesis where it is poetic, um, just as we see when we see God pronouncing his judgment. If you look in your Bible, depending on the kind of edition of, of the Bible that you have, uh, his judgment may, may be set off in a special kind of paragraph. Um, and we know that what's happening there in God's judgment is that it's actually written in the form of Hebrew poetry. And the reason we know that is because we know the rules of Hebrew grammar and we know what Hebrew poetry looks like. But when it says that the evening and the morning were a day, that's exactly what it means. The sun went down, the sun came up again, and it was a day. So when it says that a serpent spoke, that's exactly what happened. And so I will remind you from time to time of these kinds of things. But above all, I hope you see the importance of the book of Genesis to the entire Bible. Notice that I tied it in with Revelation. I tied it in with the book of Romans. I've tied in the these first three chapters, I've tied this in with the gospel of uh, Christ. I have attempted to even make reference to the book of Hebrews, which refers back to the book of Leviticus. And why am I doing that? Well, I'm hoping that you will see the importance of the book of Genesis to the entire Bible. And I'm hoping that you gain a consistent understanding of what it means to be a true Christian. See, Genesis is a fact. And if Genesis is not a fact, then we have no gospel. For it is here in the book of Genesis that we get our first glimpse of the gospel. So if Genesis is not accurate, then the prophecy given there in the Proto-Evangelium 
about the coming seed that would bruise the head of the serpent, then that can't be accurate if the book of Genesis is not accurate. And if that's not accurate, then we have no gospel. So thank you for being in my listening audience. Thank you for taking this to heart. Thank you for considering these things, praying about these things. You know, there's a group of people in the book of Acts and they're called the Bereans. And the Bereans would search the scriptures daily to find out if what they were being taught was true. And I would encourage you, go search out the scriptures. Be a good Berean and go check it out. Am I telling you the truth? Am I telling you what is recorded in scripture? Am I presenting the word of God accurately? Because I'm in a dangerous spot here. I am saying to you, dear listener, this is what the Lord has said. This is what God has said. I had better be accurate. So thank you for being in my listening audience once again. And may this podcast continue to be a blessing to those whom the Lord is calling. Thank you again for listening to James Reed's Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome the wounds caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you, but in his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged, encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in Him.